Welcome to the On The Yard Podcast, powered by the R.W. Jones Agency. I'm your host, Ashley Northington, and I'm here to connect you with the trends, news, and events happening across historically black and minority-serving colleges and universities. Tune in each week where we will give you a dose of HBCU leadership and culture, one episode at a time. Hello and welcome to On The Yard. I'm your host, Ashley Northington. And today we have the amazing pleasure of hearing from Dr. Cynthia Warwick, the president of Stillman College. Welcome, Dr. Warwick. Thank you. So I am so excited to talk to you today. I've read a lot about your bio. I've read a lot about all of your amazing accomplishments. Tell me a little bit about your path to the presidency at Stillman. Wow. Well, it started off with an interim presidency at South Carolina State University and then interim presidency at Grambling State University. And then I started my own nonprofit, the Society for Diversity in Biomedical Sciences. And then one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Mr. Johnny Miller, who was then the president of the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, called me. And he said, Cynthia, I need you to go to Stillman. Oh, wow. I need you. And I was like, okay, just for you, John. (laughs) And so uh, I, I went ahead and agreed to the interview and... And then while I was there, uh, I just fell in love with the campus. The, the campus is beautiful, we're on 105 acres. The students are great. I mean, they they need help. And, um, you know, through my vision, we've been able to move the dial and get us up to financial stability. So I think it's, 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 it's been great. That sounds awesome. So you're actually a pharmacist, right? A trained pharmacist. How did you sort of make the switch from pharmacy to higher education? Yeah, that's that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, so I had my own pharmacy in my hometown of San Antonio, Texas. Oh, okay. And uh, one of my student technicians who was working for me at the time couldn't get all the prerequisites for pharmacy school at the local community college, our HBCU, St. Phillips. Mm -hmm. And so I said, huh, that's not right. You shouldn't have to drive all across across town just to get organic chemistry and physics. So at the time, there was a vacancy on the Alamo Community College District Board of Trustees, and we elect trustees in Texas. And so I ran for the board. I got elected. And then I set up an articulation agreement between St. Phillips and Texas Southern University's College of Pharmacy so that they could have this seamless transition and those prerequisites at St. Phillips so students could go easily into pharmacy school. And so I learned all about higher ed at the community college board level. And I just saw all these issues and challenges, and I was like, hmm, I could do that. So I went back to school. I I decided to major in an area that was just up new and up and coming, environmental science, because 
there were babies being born on the Texas-Mexico border mm -hmm. without brains, and encephaly is the cause of that. And I was like, wow, that's like a health issue and environment issue. So I decided to move into environmental health types of matters and got a, a certificate in hazardous materials management at UCLA and I got my master's in environmental policy at Georgia Tech and then the doctorate in environmental science and policy at George Mason University. Oh wow, you were very, very well educated, <laughs> very, very accomplished and it seems like you're a problem solver, an innovator. Tell me a little bit, what does innovation look like at Stillman? Yeah, well, you know, I think when you focus on the students and what their needs and the change in society today, technology is critically important. Uh, students really need better ways to prepare, making things easier for them to access the college education. So all of those things using technology, we've been able to put in place at Stillman and just make it easier on the students, on their parents, so that they can have a seamless entry. And then working with the faculty to train them and upgrade their technology skills so that they can teach at a, at a, a more, a higher level than, uh, you know, the traditional uh, Socratic method. Right. Sure. So, you know, and, and COVID really forced everybody to move in that direction. Luckily, we were already going that mm -hmm. direction, and so it just accelerated our progress. Well, you know, speaking of faculty, tell me, you know, we know that over the past two years or so, there's been a lot of attention placed on HBCUs. Have you noticed any trends in faculty and hiring? Are people, you know, knocking down the door to get into Stillman because they want to support those students, they want to give back? What sort of trends have you noticed when it comes to that? Yeah, I think there is a lot of interest because HBCUs, as you know, is uh, really the only place on the planet without racism. Yes. So, you know, it's an environment that really cultivates learning and without discrimination. And so we, um, we are getting a lot of attention because of all of the types of systemic racism and arrest and deaths and all of those disproportionately uh, negative impacts in the African community mm -hmm. and, and our students and our faculty need those tools in order to address these issues in an environment that supports them right, right so I think we do see an increase certainly there's an increase of interest in students um, I think what we find at Stillman is that we're the second chance school we have a high transfer in rate Mm, okay. So we see a lot of students that have gone to the predominantly white institution, find out this was not a good fit for me, then turn around and come to Stillman and they become leaders and they excel and, and they finish in record time. So we're, we're looked at as like, I think, the second chance school and now 
people are calling me, parents, students, can I come? I started at this community college. I started at this predominantly white institution. Will you accept my transfer? And we do, we accept all the transfer credits. So we make it easy for students to come to Stillman. Wow, that's amazing. You know, that was a little bit of my story as well. I, I had accepted a scholarship to go to one campus and it was okay. And I ended up taking an art class over the summer at Tennessee State University and I felt like I was at home. Right. And so I gave up my scholarship to go to TSU. When I, I even got a scholarship to go to TSU, but I declined it when I came up. So anyway, I paid to go to TSU because I felt like it was home. Like I felt like it was a place that was gonna contribute to my success. So I understand, I kind of relate to that. So it's clear that you're a leader. It's clear, you know, you opened a nonprofit, you've, you know, been a, a president. How are you preparing the next generation of leaders? What does that look like for you? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a collaborative leader, so I'm not a I don't have an authoritarian leadership style. And I think many women are comfortable being collaborative. And so working with a team is critically important and certainly important everywhere today. No one individually by themselves. That's right. <laughs> able to achieve anything. Even as a student, you shouldn't be trying to do it all by yourself. You should have a study group or a team. So my leadership team are very diverse. Um, they are talented professionals and, and what I do is let them lead their units. So they are the CEO of their unit. We come together every other week and discuss issues. I give them feedback continuously, but I let them lead. And I think that's how you develop leaders, by letting your folks who work under you, even deans, right. department chairs, directors, let them do their job, and then they develop those skills that they need to move to the next level. Wow, yeah, that, that is incredible. There's a lot of that not happening in lots of places. So it's refreshing to know that that is something that you're thinking about and, and ushering the new generation of leaders in. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the families. So, you know, when a student is going to college, you know, oftentimes, you know, it's a decision that they're going to make for themselves, but they, sometimes they have a lot of you know, family hinging on their success, you know. How have your conversations with students and families changed mm -hmm. over the years? Are there any particular trends that you're noticing, particularly in this time and space? Oh yeah, well it's still been, you know, the majority of our student population are first generation students. So there's a lot of um, ignorance about what higher education and going to a residential college is all about. Mm -hmm. We still get parents bringing students the first day to register. They read about that, bringing them to school just like they would the public high school and think they can just enroll and right. you know, without applying, without the FAFSA, without transcripts, just enroll, just like you would in your local public school. And so there's a lot of education that needs to take place for the parents 
and the students as well, because it's just something that if you're first generation, there's no one else in your family who can tell you, and no one wants to act like they don't know. Right. They don't want to go out there and put themselves out there like they don't know what happens in college, how to access higher education. So we, um, we've been working really hard. We have like Zoom meets for parents, for students before they get to campus. We even during our orientation, we have a parents meeting so they can ask all kinds of questions about any issue that they may have. And we clarify and, and really share with them, you know, that we want to make this their home away from we want to make this a good experience for the students so they'll stay and, and finish their degree in record time. We talk about finances because that's really oh, the top issue on everybody's mind because most of our students have never paid for education in their life, never paid for housing, never paid for food. So all of those things are new and we need to talk to share with the parents about those those issues that sometimes prevent our young people from going to school. Right. Do you find that parents and families are, are choosing to, you know, if, if, if black parents and families are choosing to send their children to the, to the HBCU to the, so that they can avoid, you know, being discriminated against, so they can have, you know, this safe haven, is that coming up as like a concern among families that I don't want my child to be discriminated against or I don't want my child to experience. I haven't heard that specifically, but when I see parents and students on tours on campus mm -hmm. and they come to my office or I'll see them out and that's the first thing they say, just like you did, this feels like home. I feel yeah. welcome. I feel like this is the place for me. I feel that you know, the parents, I think you'll take care of my child. You're listening mm -hmm. to me. And and so I think that's uh, that comes across in that way. I don't see them specifically saying only some parents who might have gone to like a big university yeah. and they're like, you know, I wish I had gone to an HBCU. Right. And so, so they're sharing with their children, oh, you know, maybe you might want to go to an HBCU because parents know their child. Right, right. Yeah, that, that, that's really, really good, really helpful. So tell me, what do you think the biggest sort of challenge that perhaps HBCUs in general are facing? And then what would you say might be the biggest challenge facing Steelman specifically? Yeah. And I think it's both. I think it's still this um, recruitment and enrollment issue. Mm -hmm. uh, the cost of higher education, and when you look at the number of Americans, and especially African Americans who don't have a college degree, trying to get them over that hump, mm -hmm. then you have all of these people talking about, you don't need a college degree today. And yeah, and most of those folks aren't black. Right. So <laughs> black folks need a college degree. <laughs> 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 yes, I agree. Because <laughs> you know, like we say, this is America. So discrimination, you need all the box checked. Mm -hmm. You need the college degree and the stat credentials and the experiential uh, learning. You need experience. You right. need to have an internship. You need to have 
all of those things. You got to check all the boxes when you're black in America. Yeah, for sure. So do you, the challenges? Do you think that those the, the ones that you see do they align with what maybe your board of trustees are saying or needs to happen? How do you work to sort of bridge that gap? Yeah, yeah. I think we have to educate our boards. And uh, we provide them with important data so they get an understanding. Because I think most board members, and I've dealt with a number, mm -hmm. <laughs> they think back to their college experience. That's the only college experience they have. Right. And so they're thinking, oh, well, this is how it was when I was in college. Right. And certainly that was many moons ago. So now, you know, just trying to educate them on the use of technology, the different culture of Generation Z today, mm -hmm, right. uh, the, the cost, you know, no knee-jerk reactions about addressing costs through tuition hikes because that's just not realistic, right. you know, for, for our population. So just really educating those boards to understand that higher education must change with the times. Oh, it must indeed. I'm glad that you're on top of that. I think what we see across the landscape is what I like to call frozen success. People are really married to what ideals they may have had in yesteryear, but that is not what this new crop of students needs or is demanding of institutions. And we have to be flexible and adapt. Yeah. So now I want to ask a couple of questions to just get to know you a little bit better. So I've got three questions uh -oh. and I'd like to know the first one is what practice or activity do you do that you that keeps you grounded? Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, just really, I guess you might say I'm the most accessible college president. Okay. Um, everybody has my cell phone number, my email, I answer the phone, I, you know, address their issues, I respond to their emails, usually within 24 hours if I'm not traveling. So um, I think that's one of the things that I listen and communicate. So I think communication helps mm -hmm. me be me. That's who I am. And so I'm not trying to be the president. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm being Cynthia Ward. Right. <laughs> and that's who I am. You know, so so I think being able to have that access and you know and, and treat everyone as equals. Yeah. That's that's good. I like that. Um, so what would you say is the best life advice you've ever received? Mm -hmm. You know, my uh, my dad had a hotel, and I was exposed in a uh, you know to a lot because my dad had an insurance company, and I worked for him since seventh grade. Mm -hmm. and then he opened a hotel when they had Hemisphere in San Antonio, so I worked in his insurance company and in the hotel. And one of the residents in the hotel who was kind of like. Uh, I would say an OG, you know, like a, you know, very wise yeah. gentleman. I knew he was dealing in some sure. alternative business. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, black market type stuff. 
But before I went away to college, he, he stopped me and he says, I know you're going to college and the one thing you need to remember is you can't get something for nothing. You always have to put something there, give something, pay something. Don't let anyone fool you. You cannot get something for nothing. And having that mindset all these years has prevented me from being sucked in and making mistakes, sure. you know, because I can hear Mr. Jimmy telling me, you know, uh, Miss Scott, you can't get something for nothing. And I was like, what did, you know, then I didn't understand what does that mean? Right. And then you start getting confronted by a lot of sales pitches sure. or scams and other things. And, and that just has held through throughout my years. Yeah, that makes sense. So here's my last and final question. What's the one thing you wish more people knew about Stillman College? Mm. I wish that they knew that Stillman College has had a partnership relationship with the University of Alabama for over 50 years. Students from both institutions can take classes at no additional charge, mm -hmm. intuition or anything, and we have to limit the number of students coming from the university to 30 a semester because it's so easy to come to Stillman. Mm -hmm. And they, they want to enjoy the small class sizes, the, the PhD, professors teaching them, African-American professors yeah. teaching them. And so um, they will, they take advantage of that. So, uh, you know, people just don't understand how good we have it. So we're like a best kept secret. Well, I, you know, I know I said this is my last question, but I think I know a little bit about how that partnership began. I would love for you to quickly tell, you know, our, our audience, how did that partnership begin mm -hmm. with the University of Alabama? Like, what are what is what's the origin story? Yeah, so it's a very interesting story, and I didn't know it before I came to Stillman. But uh, back in um, when the University of Alabama was going to integrate, and the presidents got together and decided, okay, we're going to have a peaceful integration of, of the University of Alabama. Know, you know, we're gonna, it's not gonna be an issue like some of the other places we've seen in Georgia and Arkansas, Mississippi. And yet, you know, when it happened, Governor Wallace had a different yeah. idea. He had no plans. Oh, yeah, he, he, he decided, you know, it wasn't gonna happen. He was gonna block the, the schoolhouse gate and, and not let Vivian Malone and, and James Hood in. And so uh, the Attorney General of the United States at that time was Robert Kennedy. He had to order the National Guard to escort them in. Well, they had already set up this partnership where Vivian Malone would have a, a room at Stillman College in our Winsboro Hall. So she had a room there before she was admitted. She had to have somewhere to stay. And, um, and then the University of Alabama, when she was admitted, hired a driver to take her to and from 
the university in Stillman because there were four bombings on the campus at the University of Alabama. It was not a safe place for the only African-American on the campus as a student. And, uh, you know, James Hood quickly decided this wasn't for him. Mm -hmm. But uh, Vivian Malone credited her ability to, to succeed in that environment was because of Stillman, where she got all of her social and cultural activities, as well as met her her hus future husband was her driver, Matt Jones, who went on from Stillman oh, wow. to uh, Emory University Medical School. He became a medical doctor, and they married and settled in uh, Atlanta. Okay, wow. See, people, you heard it here. Stillman <laughs> is a best-kept secret, has outstanding partnerships and relationships, and is a place that you should check out should you ever visit Tuscaloosa. Thank you so much, Dr. Ward, for being here today. Thank you for taking the time to share your insights with us. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of On the Yard, powered by the R.W. Jones Agency. R.W. Jones is the nation's only strategic communications and issues management firm explicitly focused on higher education, serving more than 50 colleges and universities nationwide. Check back for next week's episode of On the Yard, where we'll give you another dose of HBCU leadership and culture.